The Iran nuclear deal is back in the headlines as the U.S. and EU seek to re-enter the agreement. And a church burns in Cairo. Newsmax contributor and foreign policy expert Dr. Walid Faraz is here with analysis. And as the Russian occupation of Ukraine continues, how is the situation affecting the church and people of faith? Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Boris Gutiak returns with an update. And a new theater production blurs the gender of St. Joan of Arc. Is this a case of artistic freedom or ideological colonization? Notre Dame professor and author of The Genesis of Gender, Abigail Favali, weighs in. The World Over begins right now. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. An important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get started. The Biden administration is weighing Iran's response to a European Union proposal aimed at reviving that 2015 international nuclear agreement. Central to Iran's response, the Iranian negotiating team said are assurances it seeks that Western companies investing in Iran would be protected if the U.S. withdrew at a later date. Here to weigh in on all of it is foreign policy expert and media analyst Dr. Walid Faraz. Walid, thank you for being here. In negotiating this nuke deal, Iran has floated mechanisms in the agreement that would allow Tehran to quickly increase its nuclear work if Washington again quit the deal. An advisor to Iran's negotiating team told the BBC, quote, what is important for Iran is that there are assurances that if the United States suddenly leaves the deal again, it comes at a price. What do you make of the constant push by the EU and this administration to revive a deal originally made in 2015, as well as Iran's response to the EU proposal? Well, Raymond, going back to 2015, originally the Iran deal under the Obama administration was designed to serve two interests. One is the Iran regime interests, which is basically to receive incredible amounts of cash, the $150 billion plus billions here and billions there when the valve uh, was, was open, and also the interest of those who will deal, will have business with the Iran regime. That's many, many European companies. And we are learning now that there are American companies also who have been pushing and lobbying for the Iran deal because it's in their interest, because the Iranian regime promised them a lot of advantages. So unfortunately, the Obama deal cost the United States a lot of concerns and actually losses in terms of our national security. The Iranian regime now, at this point in time, is trying to play with the, with the Biden administration, trying to tell them, look, if you do not come and sign and accept my conditions, I'm going to escalate my conditions myself. So the, the, the Biden administration should understand this is an Iranian tactic to force them to come and sign and continue what Obama has started. Mm. 
Yeah. Russia and China are also part of this deal, it should be noted. The new president of Iran, Ibrahim uh, Rassi, uh, is known as a hardline cleric. He was just sworn in last August. He succeeded Rouhani. Now, given the current tense relationships between the U.S., Russia, the U.S. and China, and a hardline president in Iran, why would the U.S. even pursue a deal with Iran at this point? Absolutely. I mean, you just answered the question. The Iran regime has actually a strategic deal, agreement, signed with China last year, in which China has committed to Iran to buy all the gas and oil that Iran can offer, even despite our sanctions on Iran. So the, the Iranians are already breaching the deal that they are asking us to, to sign. Same thing, Iran is selling material to Russia. Russia is selling weapons to Iran. So you're perfectly right. This is a, uh, a, a trio of Russia, China, and Iran who are now basically trying to control Asia and uh, through Asia come to Africa and to Latin America. I don't understand why the Biden administration insists except one thing is that the Iran lobby has been able to exert a lot of influence inside this administration. That's the only explanation. Mm -hmm. Well, and yet the holdovers from the Obama administration that right. created this deal the first time around, and they're all back in power again. So this is just continuing the Obama legacy. I mean, that's part of it. Last week, the U.S. Justice Department announced a plot by Iran to murder former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. Listen. Today, the Department of Justice unsealed a complaint exposing a brazen attempt by a member of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to carry out the murder of a former U.S. national security advisor. We face a rising threat from authoritarian regimes who seek to reach beyond their own borders to commit acts of repression, including inside the United States. This is an especially appalling example of the government of Iran perpetrating egregious acts of transnational violence in violation of U.S. laws and our national sovereignty. And, Waleed, they didn't even mention the Salman Rushdie stabbing this week. No. Uh, why would we even consider a deal with a regime like this that continues to export terror all over the world and in our own country? Absolutely, Raymond. I mean, the threat against uh, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, is just a piece, a piece, fortunately, that never happened. And I hope uh, other attempts by the Iranians will also fail. But I take you back to 2018, in uh, July of, or June, July of 2018, when uh, a large number of U.S. politicians, members of Congress, former members, senators, former senators, top experts, uh, I think Mr. Bolton was there, uh, Newt Gingrich was there, guess what, I was there. That rally was targeted by the Iranian intelligence for obliteration. That would have been not just one American official or ex-official, that would have been dozens. So the Iranian regime is dead set on causing harm to America and to Americans. And in addition to that, there, has been, there have been a lot of assassination attempts across the Middle East against leaders, journalists, intellectuals, in addition to the fact that the Iranian militias are roaming in Iraq, killing young people in Kurdistan, in Syria, and through Hezbollah. We know how many assassination attempts have been, and real assassinations have been successful, unfortunately. And I could count for the whole hour. Iran is on the terror offensive. So your question is so valid. Why are we determined? Why are we relentless in trying to go back? 
and give Iran what it wants, more money to buy more weapons, to fund more militias in the region. Uh, there is no logic to this. Uh, since the 2015 agreement, incidentally, Iran has gone back to enriching uranium, has purified some of its new stockpile to a level of 60 percent, close to the 90 percent enrichment used to produce nuclear weapons. Can they be trusted? And more importantly, what does the U.S. and the EU stand to gain, if anything, from a deal, Walid? The reason for why the Iran regime cannot be trusted, objective reasons, put all the subjective reasons on the side, is that a regime that commits to stop the build-up of a, of a strategic weaponry system, a strategic nuclear weaponry system, will not be buying and developing and deploying and testing and using ballistic missiles. What would you use the ballistic missiles for? Throw roses? You don't. The only use, the only use for ballistic missiles is what are weapons of mass destruction, including the nuclear. Second, the Iranian regime is buying anti-aircraft missiles, is improving its offensive uh, capabilities in in, uh, in 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 the navy. They have their militias as far as Yemen and Lebanon and Syria. So all indicates that the money they got already from the previous billions of dollars released by the Obama administration has been used not to help the middle class and the poor people inside Iran, but to buy weapons and to equip themselves and equip these militias, and they are on the offensive. So now, try to convince me or anybody who know this uh, information that Iran has the intention of never having a nuclear bomb. Besides, last point, Raymond, here, it is not said that the only path to a nuclear weapon is the enrichment of uranium. They want us to think that this is the only one and there are 50 percent, 60 percent, and down and up. What they can do with that money is buy a dozen tactical nukes. That's all they need to put the region under their own terror. Yeah. Well, look, it, uh, moving on to another uh, disaster in the Middle East, it's been a year since the Biden administration withdrew U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Now, since then, the Taliban has taken over the entire country. Human rights abuses abound. Girls no longer go to school. International aid has evaporated. And U.S. sanctions that froze some $7 billion of Afghan foreign reserves has sent their economy into a tailspin. The United Nations has estimated that as many as 97 percent, or as much as 97 percent, of the country may fall below the poverty line by the second half of the year. How big a mistake was it to leave Afghanistan the way we did? And what, if anything, can be done there now? That was the mother of all mistakes. I mean, at least with the Iran deal, we are in a middle way. We can save ourselves and save the Iranian people and our allies in the region, Israel and the Arab moderates, and the Lebanese and the Syrians and others. But with the Taliban disaster of last year, what happened is that the Taliban, they don't care about the quality of life of the Afghan people. They don't care about the freedom. They don't care about their image, actually, anywhere around the world. What they care about is to establish the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan, which will be the launching pad or the relaunching pad for the caliphate that al-Qaeda, and now ISIS, and now uh, the Haqqani network, and uh, all the other neo-jihadist groups that are now reinstalled in Afghanistan, I mean, one of the commitments that the administration said, oh, we got from the Taliban is they're not going to allow international terrorists or jihadists to reorganize in Afghanistan. Guess what? One month 
<clears throat> one month after our withdrawal, Al-Qaeda was crossing the borders from Pakistan into Afghanistan, from Iran into Afghanistan. It was on Al Jazeera. It was on Al Arabiya. It was on all Arab TV. So it's not the fact that we had to wait to assert, to kill uh, the, the, the most recent commander of Al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, to know and learn, oh my goodness, they hosted him. Right. They have been hosting all these international jihadists for a year now. Uh, this past weekend, an electrical fire broke out in a church, in a Coptic Orthodox church, rather, in central Cairo. It killed 41 worshipers, 18 of them children. Egyptian President uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi uh, ordered the army to renovate the building immediately, and by Monday evening, the exterior of the church looked like it was newly built. What's been the reaction on the ground to this fire, Walid? Well, you and I have spoken about the cops. You have spoken at their conferences for so many years. Yep. We have many friends. We feel very bad about what happened. This was a this was a very bad moment to be seen on TV or or you know, we have our friends who have families there. The Coptic community yep. has been going through a very tragic part of history. We know it. Persecution, attacks by the jihadists, beheading in Libya, Muslim Brotherhood persecuting them as well when they were in power in 20. Uh, 12, 2013. Fortunately, the Egyptian people rose in 2013. And then with the help of the armies, it was not a coup, it was a rise of the population. They got rid of the Brotherhood. And of course, the jihadists continue to target the cops. Why? Because it's the weakest segment of society. So now with all these mm. disasters, one would hope that the Egyptian government and what you've announced uh, is part of it, are going to come and then help, collectively help the Coptic community together. Yeah. Well, the patriarch of Egypt's 10 million Coptic Orthodox Christians, Pope Tadros, uh, vented his frustration on Tuesday that, look, this is the largest Christian community in the Middle East. It's been squeezed by decades of government regulations uh, restricting the number and the size of churches. Uh, he called on the authorities to either move the 12,000-square-foot church to a larger space or allow it to expand to accommodate the large number of Christians in the neighborhood. How do you think the patriarch's criticism will be received by the Sisi government? Look, I know the patriarch. I went to Egypt twice. I met him, met his deputy. Uh, he's clairvoyant. He is very good leader for his community. But what is very important is that he and his church marched hand in hand with the Muslim, you know, hierarchy when the population rose against the Brotherhood. The army then, the commander of the army, General Sisi at the time, was supported by the Copts. And he knows it. That's why his reaction now, while Egypt is facing a lot of economic trouble, is to help this community. And yeah, I would agree. I mean, if I was an Egyptian, I would ask the president, uh, President Sisi, to help in every way he can this community, because it reflects upon each this community, her, their voice of cops around the world with the other churches, with the Vatican, with the, the evangelical community is, is very important. So I think it's in the interest of the current government of Egypt to do everything they yeah. can to help yeah. the Egyptian Coptic community.
Well, and that Copt community has its roots in, in the ancient Egyptian. These are the ancient people of Egypt. That's who they right. are. They, they trace their roots right back to those ancient Egyptians. So it's important to keep that community alive. It is part of their identity. Walid Ferris, thank you so much for being here. You can follow Dr. Ferris on Twitter at Walid Ferris. Thank you. Thank you very much. How is the church and its faithful faring in Ukraine amidst the ongoing Russian occupation? Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Boris Kutyak of the Arch Eparchy of Philadelphia joins us now via Zoom with an update. Your Excellency, thank you for being here. Uh, when you last joined us in March, Your Excellency, the Russian invasion had just gotten underway. Now, nearly six months later, where does Ukraine stand, and how's the church continuing to deal with this occupation and, and all the, the bloodshed and violence there? Well, there's a lot that's happened, and I thank you for covering it uh, on EWTN. Uh, there's been great devastation. Probably between 70 and 90,000 people have been killed since then. And if you remember the scenes that emerged before the world's eyes in April, March was actually the most devastating time of the occupation as far as we know it. Remember when Bucha emerged, uh, those towns and in, in cities around the capital of the country. I had a chance to visit Bucha in um, July. Uh, 1,300 bodies, mostly civilians, were found in this town. Uh, mm -hmm. just in that town in its uh, general vicinity. Uh, we really don't know the details of what's happening in the other parts occupied. There's over a thousand towns and villages that are occupied. So if you can right. multiply that, um, the, the war uh, is going back and forth. Uh, I met hundreds of people in my three trips in May, June, and July to Ukraine all walks of life, all ages in different parts of the country, soldiers, grandmothers, students, children, uh, teachers, priests, nobody, uh, Raymond, not a single person expressed kind of the kind of despair that leads to giving up. Nobody said we have to make concessions, we have to compromise, because people have a sense that the Russians have genocidal intent. Uh, Putin's been pretty clear that, you know, Ukraine will have no future. Bucha showed the devastation, uh, the gruesome cruelty that, that the army is capable of. And so people are putting up a fight. Archbishop, the Biden administration recently approved the largest weapons package yet for Ukraine, a bump of uh, $1 billion for a security assistance package, bringing the U.S. commitment to nearly $10 billion. Uh, now, there have also been reports of the Biden administration uh, communicating some distrust of where that aid is actually going. What are the country's real needs now? And what are you hearing from church leaders and the faithful on the ground? So uh, just to remind uh, the viewers of, of the massive nature of this thing, 14 million people have been displaced from their homes, half of them outside right. of the country, and another 5 million are in the country but can't survive without humanitarian aid. Uh, at least 40% of the economy has, has, has been closed down. Uh, 
Ukraine needs prayer, it needs good information, which you're giving, and it needs help. It needs defensive help, it needs humanitarian help. Um, when I was in Poland, and I was there five times in the last three months, I thank Poles for the incredible hospitality. They hosted four million Ukrainians, and they weren't in camps, they were in people's homes. And yeah. you know what? One of the responses was they would say, we are grateful to the Ukrainians because they're dying for our freedom. If Ukraine mm -hmm. falls, Poles feel Poland is next. If that happens, the defense costs for the United States and the West will be in the trillions, not in the billions. And so what Ukrainians today are saying, help us, we are dying, but give us the instruments to fight for democracy and for the freedom of the Western world. Mm. Archbishop Winter will be descending on the region in just a few months. Uh, what will that mean for both the Russian aggression as well as the Ukrainian resistance? And as you mentioned, we're up to 100,000 Ukrainian casualties, 14 million displaced. How long can this go on? You know, I, I don't know, Raymond. Uh, I didn't think it, this could happen. I didn't think the war would last eight years. It's been going on for eight years. I'm I'm praying for an act of God. Um, I don't know how that will come about. I know that, you know, imagine the mindset of Ukrainians. Think of African-Americans and somebody telling them, you have to go back into slavery. They're telling Americans, you have to become a, a British colony or Peru or Uruguay, you're gonna be a Spanish colony. Today, Ukrainians have said enough. We're not gonna be a colony anymore. It's over. We will do everything possible to maintain our God-given dignity, our independence, our sovereignty. Uh, Ukrainians won't give up. The war will end when Russia stops the aggression. And Russia mm. needs to be forced to stop that aggression. Well, Archbishop, the biggest, the biggest challenge is the population has scattered, and Russia has claimed uh, at least some of this territory. Is a diplomatic solution the answer here? Should, should there be a ceasefire and everybody kind of take a breath and say, look, we know you have this territory, but we're going to negotiate what you can actually have going forward, and then bring Ukraine into the EU or something? Yeah. Well, if you want a clear, simple answer, no, because you can't negotiate with Hitler. You can't negotiate with Putin. He, you saw the grain deal uh, that was uh, cut, the deal to get grain from Ukraine to the starving populations of Africa in the Middle East. And the next day, Putin sent cruise missiles into the port of Odessa. Uh, mm -hmm. He will, you know, you give him a finger, he'll take your arm. If he, you give him his, your arm, he'll take your whole body. Ukrainians have zero faith, faith in anything Putin says. Any promises, anything on paper is meaningless. Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal in 1994. It gave up its mm -hmm. nukes, the first country to do so. And Russia promised Ukraine's territorial integrity. Those, those deals are not worth the paper uh, they're written on if they are not supported by clear political and uh, military uh, positions. And 
this, well, this is the, why the, hundreds the, of thousands of Ukrainians are volunteering to defend their country. Yeah, but the challenge here, Archbishop, is, uh, you know, Putin, it, it, by the count that we have in some media, which is 700,000 Russian casualties, it appears Putin is determined to just wear everybody down here. And the, the challenge, just looking from afar, is he's reducing these cities to rubble, where they're basically uninhabitable. So at what cost do you keep this war going if he ultimately flattens half or more than half of this country? See, Raymond, this is the difficulty of people in the West understanding uh, the history that Ukrainians and other other uh, captive nations have endured. In the uh, 20th century, 15 million Ukrainians were killed. So far, it's under 100,000. Uh, mm -hmm. Ukrainians understand if there will be a Russian occupation of Ukraine, there's going to be a genocide of Ukrainians. And that's why they're willing to sacrifice their lives, because they know that if they're occupied, they're going to be killed, uh, having not put up a fight. And so uh, I was surprised that not one single person, maybe I was in a bubble, you know, maybe it's the kind of people I met, but uh, I was in Kiev, I was in Bucha, I was in formerly occupied territory, non-occupied territory, meeting with people in Poland and Belgium and France and Canada and the United States, recent refugees, everybody is on the same page. No concessions mm. to Putin. Just this week, there was a Russian strike on an apartment complex. They've done this multiple times. It killed at least six in Kharkiv. Uh, they also shelled a tram depot in the same city. That killed three. Meanwhile, President Zelensky met with the Turkish president, Erdogan. What do you make of these diplomatic efforts in the region? And might they bring or bear some fruits? What more needs to be done here? I think those diplomatic efforts are very important. Uh, Turkey has a big role to play. Uh, Turkey has its own ambitions. Uh, one should be very careful about, you know, the evaluation of Erdogan's intentions. Uh, He's been very brutal with his own population, putting tens of thousands of people in prison. Uh, but uh, it's very important that Erdogan not support Putin. And uh, the diplomatic work needs to continue to make sure that uh, the coalition of democratic and free countries stands strong and resists uh, this growing totalitarianism. Because the problem is, if you don't make the sacrifice today, you will make us 10 times greater sacrifice tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That is yeah, that well, is what needs clear. to be kept in mind as a criteria for the negotiations. Well, clearly, this has turned into something of a proxy war between the United States and the West and, and Russia, with China backing it. I mean, that's what's at stake here. Uh, the question is, uh, how much stomach does the West and the United States and how much uh, cash are they willing to expend on this effort? And uh, we'll see. We'll see in the days ahead. But, Archbishop, I want to get your thoughts on the Vatican. Go ahead. You wanted to say what? Yeah. See, the danger with the terminology of proxy war is it makes uh, Ukrainians objects. You know, a, a, a mm -hmm. nation of 40 million people, it has its own will. It's God-given. It's, it's a God-given right to live in dignity. 
And Ukrainians are deciding, you know, there are no other people dying uh, to confront Putin. No other nation Mm -hmm. is willing to sacrifice their citizens. No other, some citizens are actually coming into Ukraine and helping the the effort. Uh, Mm -hmm. Ukrainians are willing to do this. They're paying the price for the rest of Europe, the rest of the Western world. And I think it's a very good choice to support them. And that's what Americans have done. And I must say, everywhere I went, Ukrainians were grateful for the humanitarian and the defensive aid. Mm-hmm. People in the church, people in the street, people in the, in the refugee centers. So I want to thank all of you that have supported Ukrainians at this very difficult time. Archbishop, I want to get your thoughts on the Vatican diplomacy here when it comes to Ukraine. Secretary of State Pietro Parolin had this to say about the Holy See's role in diplomacy. He said the diplomacy of the Holy See is not linked to a state, but to a reality of international law that has no political, economic, or military interests. Now, given the current uh, Bishop of Rome's willingness to expound publicly on really any number of global issues of import, uh, do you feel the Vatican is expending enough diplomatic energy on the situation in Ukraine? Well, you know, maybe what I think is not most in, the most important thing. What uh, I gauged in Ukraine is that many people would like the Holy See to be uh, more clear. Uh, one thing that the Holy See apparently is beginning to do is to work on the negotiation of uh, prisoner exchange because you've seen that the Ukrainian POWs have been massacred, castrated, tortured. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is a very positive thing that the Holy See now uh, seems to be uh, developing. Uh, Even the sentence that you uh, expressed, I think, uh, is something that a lot of people cannot fully understand. And, you know, when, when you're dying, you need, when you're sacrificing, when, when things are black and white, uh, you need you need language that really is clear about that. Uh, we're hoping that uh, the language of, of of the Holy See and others will be clear. I mean, the language of some Germans is not clear. In fact, uh, the language of some Americans is very much under the influence of Russian propaganda. So there's a lot of work to do, and that's why what you do is so important, Raymond. Over 20 journalists have given their lives to bring the real story to the world. And uh, my hats are off to you, journalists. Yeah, no, it's a heartbreak, including uh, one of my colleagues over at Fox, one of our cameramen who, who was killed uh, there. But um, so I want to mention something here that I think is, is critical. Uh, the Holy Father is planning to meet with the Russian patriarch, or would like to, uh, in the coming weeks. Is that worthwhile? D- do you see anything coming from that, in that uh, Alexei was such a supporter, he really gave Putin a lot of theological cover, if you will, to go into Ukraine? Yeah. Patriarch Kirill, Alexei was the predecessor. Kirill, um, I'm sorry. Right. There's there's uh, this scheduled uh, meeting of leaders of world religions in Kazakhstan. As we've seen, a number of uh, the Holy Father's engagements have had to be canceled because of health reasons. So it's not very clear whether he will go. 
But there is also uh, some indication that uh, there will not be a face-to-face -face personal meeting. There will be, if the Pope goes, a meeting among all of the uh, those present. There's actually uh, you know, rumor out there that Patriarch Kirill uh, does not really want to meet the Pope because the Pope uh, called him an altar boy of Putin. Yeah. And uh, whether he feels offended by that or he doesn't want to hear it again, uh, there's some diffidence on, on his part. He's been mm -hmm. profoundly discredited uh, by his words and by his actions. Mm. Before we go, I want to get your take on the media coverage of this conflict, which was wall-to-wall -wall at the beginning. Uh, you have long urged the faithful to stay well-informed of this invasion and the occupation of Ukraine. Uh, that coverage has, since we started covering this, dissipated. What's being missed now in the coverage that you are seeing? Well, I think it's just uh, the, the resolve of the population. Uh, of course, uh, you know, it, it would be very good if the day-to-day -day atrocities could be shown because, you know, we, we forget. Uh, in, in any case, it's very difficult to live in tension and in crisis all the time, uh, whether, you know, yeah. it's yours or whether it's somebody else's crisis. So it's kind of natural that uh, it's understandable that, uh, you know, the eye of the world is turning elsewhere. It's really quite amazing that uh, the coverage has been so focused because there's 20 wars going on in the world. But I think people were taken aback and actually inspired by the fact that David was standing up to Goliath in a biblical way. People were giving their lives knowingly. This is not, you know, the Ukrainian army is not people who can't find another job. These are businessmen, fathers, community leaders, politicians mm -hmm. who've joined and uh, they're risking their lives. And that's a sign of a people that believe in eternity, that believe mm. that my life, my life, which is my great gift, is not the most important thing in the world. I might be able to, I might have to sacrifice it for something greater. And I think that's been very inspiring. And I think that's worthy of, of continuing coverage because it really is something that brings us to transcendental moments. Archbishop, before I let you go, it just brought to mind something. There is a continuing conversation in the church um, on a theological level, uh, looking to dispense with the just war theory. Having had a front row seat watching your people suffer under this kind of, uh, you know, unwelcome and uninvited aggression, your thoughts on the church's view of a just war and at times needing to engage in it? Well, you know, there's a lot of dirty stuff in uh, our human existence, and war is about the worst thing. And there is, you know, a reflection, a deep reflection, centuries long. And uh, the Holy Father expressed it in a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, my colleague from the Ukrainian Catholic University, Miroslav Marinovich, who asked him, Holy Father, can we defend ourselves? And Pope Francis responded, Somebody who doesn't defend themselves, especially if he's called to defend the innocent, is like somebody committing suicide. So mm. it should be clear that we need to defend the innocent, 
we need to have just cause. We have to have the right methods. We have to have the right degree of response. But all of these things have their place in this sinful world where, they're, where the devil gets people to kill other people. And we need to defend uh, the innocents. That is what just war it. is basically saying. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We will leave it there. Uh, Archbishop Boris Gutiak, I thank you not only for your firsthand witness of what's really happening, but for your clarity and, and your faith through all of this. Bless the people of Ukraine. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Please keep praying. And if you wish Please to help, inform people you can and help how you ahead. can. Uh, we have a Metropolitan uh, Humanitarian Fund, which, like the news coverage, has waned somewhat. If you can uh, present this fund to the attention of our viewers, we will be very grateful because there's a lot of people that we're helping with American generosity. You took the words out of my mouth. I was just about to do that. If, you, if you'd like to help, visit the Archeparchy's website at U-K-R-A-R-C-H-E-P-A-R-C-H-Y dot U-S. Look for the Save Ukraine button on the top right of the screen. You can help there. Archbishop, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. And don't forget about my forthcoming picture book for the entire family, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. It's available for pre-order now at the EWTN catalog, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, BAM, or at your local bookstore. It's already an Amazon number one Christmas new release. For more information, visit RaymondArroyo.com. I'm also going on a full book tour this fall. I look forward to seeing all of you. In an upcoming production of Joan of Arc at Shakespeare's Globe Theater, the French Catholic heroine will be portrayed as a non-binary character who refers to herself using they-them pronouns. The staging has caused an uproar among politicians, writers, historians, professors, and theatergoers alike. But where is this approach to gender coming from? Joining me now to discuss this in her latest book, The Genesis of Gender, is author and professor at the University of Notre Dame, Abigail Favli. Thank you so much for being with us. Abigail, I have to start with this Globe Theater's decision to portray Joan of Arc as non-binary, uh, which they're using as a selling point, by the way. In a statement last week, the theater announced their production in a tweet which read, quote, Our new play, I, Joan, shows Joan as a legendary leader who uses the pronouns they, them. We are not the first to present Joan in this way, and we will not be the last. We can't wait to share this production with everyone and discover this cultural icon. Abigail, your reaction when you heard this? Um, <laughs> uh, my reaction was um, not pleased, I guess. Unsurprised, but not pleased. It seems to be part of a trend in our culture of taking unconventional women and unwomening them, basically saying they're not really women because they didn't fit the right kind of stereotypes. Mm. The, the play's artistic director argued that, quote, play adaptations make anything possible because theaters do not deal with historical reality. She also insisted that Shakespeare would have approved, saying, quote, Shakespeare did not write historically accurate plays. He took figures of the past to ask questions about today's world. Our writers of today 
are doing no nothing different, whether that's Anne Boleyn or Nell Gwyn, Emilia Bassano, Edward II, or Joan of Arc. Uh, how do they know what Shakespeare would have approved of, Abigail? And wasn't it part of the point uh, that Joan of Arc defied the gender norms of her time? Right. So the the, the argument isn't you know, people aren't upset because they think that plays need to be historically accurate. This is not about, you know, wanting to police historical accuracy in, in creative productions. You you get to play when you put on a play. But the point is, the way you play is going to present some kind of message. And so I think what people are responding to is that this change is projecting this contemporary understanding of gender identity onto a real figure who was remarkable mm -hmm. precisely because as a woman. And so it's taking one of one of the best features about her and completely changing that um, in a way that that I think really distorts her story um, and um, does, I guess I I would say undermines her dignity in some ways. Mm. What do you mean by that undermining her dignity? Well, and so maybe I mean undermining my own dignity because I love Joan of Arc. And it's also, it's really important for women and girls to be able to look to examples, to encounter stories of remarkable mm -hmm. heroines. Um, and so Joan of Arc, I think, shows the expansiveness of what womanhood can look like, as I think the Communion of mm -hmm. Saints does as a whole. Um, there are remarkable, unconventional men and women among the Communion of Saints. And so seeing a portrayal of Joan that really takes that heroine piece out and makes her simply yeah. um, this kind of neutral character, it, it takes away one of the, the favorite heroines women and girls need. Yeah. Well, uh, and in the Catholic sense, as you point out, she, she is a, a venerated saint uh, in addition to being a cultural icon. And now feminists, uh, everybody from J.K. Rowling to professors to uh, Catholics are denouncing this portrayal as offensive and sexist. What harm does this do to women to have Joan of Arc portrayed as non-binary? And uh, for the audience who might not be familiar, what does the term mean, non-binary? Sure. So the term non-binary means someone who does not identify either as a man or a woman, um, so as neither. So they're saying that they opt out of the binary altogether. Um, and I think there's a reason there is so much widespread backlash is that this has struck a nerve because it's not really about the play, but it's rather about this concept of gender identity that has suddenly risen to cultural ascendancy and is being mm. um, kind of pushed in schools, pushed in popular discourse. And so this almost seems like a straw that broke the camel's back moment, right? That um, we're being kind of asked to embrace this completely new understanding of of what it means to be a human being and what it means to be a woman. Um, and then mm. to have that imposed upon a figure like Joan of Arc that has been, I think, such an iconic figure for women specifically. Um, this, this controversy well, about gender tends to take things that belong to women and take them away from women. Well, and, and her, her femininity was really at the heart of the trial. There's a big chunk of the trial. Anybody who's read those transcripts, um, the, the, you know, they were very concerned that a woman was, you know, in barracks with men, leading men, doing something that was not a woman's role. So the moment you say, well, she's just non-binary, or they, them are non-binary, 
it kind of saps the part of the drama out of the whole thing. But you know, just saying as a as a you know stickler for his historicity. But uh, the Globe is not the only theater, Abigail, moving in this direction. The Roundabout Theater in New York is reviving the Broadway musical 1776, one of my favorites. Only in this version, the founding fathers will be played by, quote, actors who identify as female, transgender, and non-binary. Now, Abigail, who does this serve, and what is the purpose of portraying historical characters this way? Well, I think the purpose is—it's um, an ideological purpose, really. Um, I—I don't—I'm not familiar with the specific production, but I can imagine that it's a commentary also on— um, the fact that the founding fathers were all men, and so wanting to kind of insert mm -hmm. some different kinds of identities. Um, but it, it really is, it, it basically takes historical figures and makes them puppets of a contemporary ideology. And there's something, mm -hmm. there, there's something silencing about that, right? Because it takes voices from the past that should be able to speak a kind of wisdom to us, and then it silences them, and it just projects our own understanding. You know, I think there's something—I yeah. think Chesterton talked about the tyranny of the present. That's what this feels like. It mm -hmm. feels like there's this tyranny yeah. of the present, where there should be, should be something that opens things up rather than simply, um, be, you know, puppeting whatever the latest fad happens to be. Yeah, no, you're taking these historical figures and you're really holding them hostage and making them say things and do things they otherwise were never a part of and wouldn't be. I mean, my, my big question, and, and if you don't know this play, uh, it, it's a beautiful way for families to kind of understand the drama and the figures around the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it, it, this thing was written in, like, 1969. You know, it's an old play, old musical. They did a movie version of it as well. But I don't know who's going to play Abigail Adams in here. I guess a guy. I don't know. Uh, I want to move on to another story. There has been major backlash over the past couple of weeks when news of a Boston Children's Hospital gender clinic for kids took over social media, prompting outrage over the hospital's, quote, and it reads like this, first-of-its-kind program to facilitate sex changes for children in the form of hormone treatments and irreversible surgeries. Now, according to the hospital's website, they offer a full suite of treatment options, including double mastectomies for children as young as 15, uh, steriliz sterilizing genital surgeries for teens. This is the director of this Boston Children's Hospital gender clinic. A child will often know that they are transgender from the moment that they have any ability to express themselves, and parents will often tell us this. We have parents who tell us that their kids, they knew from the minute they were born practically, and actions like refusing to get a haircut or standing to urinate, trying to stand to urinate, refusing to stand to urinate, trying on siblings' clothing, uh, playing with the, quote, opposite gender toys. So what we're seeing from them is that they always sort of knew something was maybe off and didn't have the understanding to know that they might be trans or have a different gender identity than the one they had been assigned. So that is a, a growing population that, they are, that we are seeing and that's being recognized as being trans and able to be treated. So children who play with opposite gender toys and don't want haircuts are trans. Abigail, your thoughts on this and what this approach is doing to social gender norms? Right. I mean, you're picking up on, on the irony here that this ostensibly progressive approach 
is actually reinforcing very rigid stereotypes about what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a boy. So now we we don't look at the body to proclaim girlness and boyness. Now we we look to cultural scripts and and behavior and stereotypes. And then, you know, it's the adults who are kind of putting kids in a box this way. Um, and it's really it's really kind of horrifying, um, honestly, how the violence we're doing to children in in um, in this way. Um, and this actually reminds me one point I wanted to touch on with the Joan. If you see the poster of the play, she's her breasts are bound. She's wearing a chest binder, mm. and that's also something that's often um, kind of a part of the non-binary identity, especially for a female. Is to actually, it's almost like this new sort of foot binding practice, um, but breast binding, which which can cause tissue damage and and problems breathing. But this, this is where this understanding leads because it asserts this understanding of identity that is at odds with the body. Um, but then it becomes just rooted in stereotypes. We're also seeing, Abigail, changes in language. Um, last month, the Associated Press style book, which so many broadcasters and writers use as kind of the Bible of terminology, uh, it suggests to avoid terms like biological sex and sex change and replace them with substitutes like sex assigned at birth and gender transition. How important are these language shifts and what do they mean? These language shifts are incredibly important uh, because this concept of identity is not rooted in material reality. It's fundamentally linguistic. And so this is how the this is this is how the illusion um, remains intact, right? Because you know we're basically by the language we're using, we're kind of telling ourselves this story and then learning to believe in it. So the language is really important, and it's so philosophically loaded. The phrase "sex assigned at birth," that word "assigned," that takes something, a reality that is objective and stable, easily and it turns it into something that's imposed by culture rather than something that is actually read and understood. Um, so mm. that that imports this whole philosophical understanding of meaning, of truth and reality that's fundamentally based in postmodern anti-realism. So this, these language changes really matter. Yeah. I want to get into your book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. You begin with competing creation narratives, uh, origin stories meant to explain the nature and telos of humanity, of man and woman. Now, this duality is present throughout the remainder of the book, uh, including your own story that you've interwoven throughout. How did you come to focus on this topic of gender, Abigail? Well, I think I've always been interested in it um, from a young age. And I think that might be because as a girl, I didn't always fit the stereotypes of how girls were supposed to be or what they were supposed to like. I was pretty sporty, pretty competitive. Um, and I often found myself in, in places where I was playing more with boys than with girls. Um, and then I went to college and I, I really embraced feminism. That became my religion in a sense for about a decade. And I went on to study gender and theory in graduate school. Um, but then I became a Catholic around the age of 30, and that was quite a worldview shift. Um, but my interest in gender, in the dignity of women, has persisted. And so now um, I, 
in this book, I thought I want to bring my insider knowledge of gender and feminist theory to try and clarify some of what's happening in our culture, which is changing so rapidly mm-hmm. and can be so confusing. But I, I wanted to give people some handholds to be able to navigate it. You, you write about a major shift happening in how people have traditionally thought of men and women, namely as essentially sexed creatures whose gender corresponds to this reality. Where did the division of sex and gender emerge? And, and how does it impact the way we understand human nature, the natural order? Right. So I, this, this shift has happened over the past hundred years or so. So we have a conceptual shift that happens in the 20th century um, where we have this new concept of gender that comes in as distinct from sex. And then we also have simultaneously this contraceptual revolution happening where um, that I think that one thing I argue is that our embrace of contraception as a culture has changed our cultural imagination about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. It's no longer about procreative potential, which can't be changed, and you can't adopt the procreative potential of the opposite sex. But when that is taken out, then manhood and womanhood become much more about external things like appearances or even mm-hmm. roles or behavior. And those things can be mimicked. And so then once once we no longer began to think about procreative potential, then it almost seemed possible that a man could become a woman and vice versa. And then we have this concept of gender that comes in and really takes hold in feminist theory. Um, and so that distinction between sex and gender then has um, paved the way for the current concept of gender, which is really an internal sense of self. That's what gender is. It has it has nothing to do with the body, um, per se, but it, ha- it has to be imposed upon the body. No, it's a social construct. It's a social construct that society has sort of placed on individuals, um, which is, you know, again, it's a it's a radical reading of, of nature and how we understand the sexes, each other, and, and people at large. How would you define what it means to be a woman specifically in light of Christian sacramentalism? Right. Well, to be a woman is to be the kind of human being who can gestate life within, create life within. Um, And then a male is the kind of human being who can um, create life without. And so those procreative roles point toward divine realities, namely the relationship between God and humankind. So our sexual difference as male and female is a metaphor, this divine symbol, this sacramental symbol of how God creates and transmits life to us, and we receive that, and then that that is life-giving. So maleness and femaleness is also an image of the Trinity, right? Because our understanding of God is that God is an interpersonal communion who is life-giving. And so our maleness and femaleness signal that we, too, are made for interpersonal communion, um, primarily with God, and that that communion is life-giving. We will leave it there. Fascinating. The Genesis of Gender, a Christian theory by Abigail Favoli, is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Abigail, thank you. Thank you. Before we go, some sad news to report. Sister Marie Antoinette of the Poor Clares of Perpetual Adoration passed away on August 12th after a battle with pancreatic cancer. She was an accomplished violinist who played professionally before entering Mother Angelica's convent in Birmingham back in 1984. 
She served as the community archivist, and we became dear friends. Uh, Sister Antoinette was instrumental in helping me locate material and records for my biography of Mother Angelica. And in 2005, when the founding monastery of Mother Angelica's order in Troyes, France, needed sisters, Sister Antoinette volunteered to go. She helped reopen that founding monastery of the order, even recording a CD to help raise money for the refurbished chapel roof. She said she was fiddling for the roof. The order was founded in 1854 in Paris, but within the next two years, 1856, the community was definitely established here in this very house. These are the roots of Mother Angelica's order, the, the order that Mother Angelica joined when she was a, a young sister, and anyway, the roots started... really of EWTN. Okay. Anytime that uh, the community is assembled together, there's always that Eucharistic element of being part of the body of Christ in everything that we do. Dear Sister Marie Antoinette was a dedicated, religious, a loyal daughter of Mother Angelica. Her funeral mass will be celebrated Saturday, August 20th, in Troyes, France, and she will be laid to rest at the monastery she helped to revive. May Sister Antoinette rest in peace. Well, that is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.